You're listening to the Monocle Daily First Broadcast on the 29th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Middle East awaits the United States' response to a deadly attack on one of its bases. The UN's aid agency in Gaza protests its innocence as donors desert. And is six water slides enough to tempt you aboard the world's largest cruise ship? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Elizabeth Brawl will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the author Arash Azizi about his self-explanatory new book, What Iranians Want. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Elizabeth Braugh, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of the upcoming title Goodbye Globalisation, and also by Latika Burke, journalist and expert on geopolitics. Hello to you both. Hello, Andrew. Um, Elizabeth, seeing as how you are facing the next half an hour and change being surrounded by Australians, we will let you go first. Um, We will be talking more about your book in coming days, but just briefly introduce it to us if you would. It is what it says on the tin, a book about the rise and now fall of globalization. And uh, when I started writing it a couple of years ago, it wasn't obvious that it would, uh, that globalization would collapse in quite the rapid fashion that had, has turned out to be the case. So I feel uh, that I uh, made a good bet because it did happen and it happened uh, much more dramatically than even I could, could have anticipated. And, and this book really is a story of, of the exuberance of the 90s, early 90s, mm-hmm. late 80s, early 90s, and then the peak around 2008 with, uh, with the Beijing Olympics and, uh, and then the beginning doubts that that uh, were spreading in the business community above all uh, and, and among ordinary people about whether globalization was actually working. And, and here we are today and it maps this, this whole story through the careers and, and insights from, from various uh, business leaders, politicians and then as well from Gen Z. Well, that's exciting because the terror that journalists usually have when they put a book out about anything to do with current affairs is that it will get overtaken by events. But it seems that you have, in fact, yourself overtaken the events. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very grateful to Yale University Press for for making this bet that, that things would turn out the way I was predicting they would turn out. And, and I hope Yale feels that they've been rewarded. Uh, And Latika, a change in your billing uh, to the one that our listeners will be very familiar with by now. You have gone freelance. Where can people find you now? Well, my main site is my Substack, and you can find that at a very easy address, www.latikamburk.com. And it's been a very exciting first month, I must say, Andrew. I am uh, the first person to say I'm completely astonished by the support I've had, actually, from subscribers who are, believe it or not, willing to pay for what I think and what I write. So you can read me there. <laughs> well, no, God bless people who are willing to pay journalists 100%. to journalise uh, if only there were more of you. But just give us a brief sense of what kind of things people can find on your Substack. Well, I think I'll be reading Elizabeth's book pronto because the death of globalisation is certainly one of the themes that I'll be following. And related to that, I think the rise and upsurge in protectionism, how very 
various jurisdictions, particularly the Western ones, uh, want to kind of grapple with this retreat to protectionism that they're experiencing. Obviously, as regular listeners of Monocle will know, I'm very focused on China and the strategic mm-hmm. competition that is underway. And I'll be keeping a very close eye on the two politics that I've fallen in love with, which, is, of course, is Australian politics, where I began, and British politics, or maybe we'll substitute the word binfire for that for now. <laughs> well, we will start in the Middle East, where certain nervous parties are waiting to see exactly what the United States means by a very consequential response. This is so far the willfully vague extent of America's reply to the weekend's drone attack on a US military base known as Tower 22, just inside Jordan's borders with Syria and Iraq. Three US troops were killed and more than 34 injured. Though there have been at least 150 attacks on US bases in Iraq and Syria since Israel's war with Hamas began in October, this is the first to have resulted in fatalities. Um, Elizabeth, first of all, this attack has been been claimed by someone or something called the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which seems to be a vague umbrella term for an assortment uh, of ratbag militias running around that part of the world. Is this basically the IRGC's Quds Force by another name? That is the challenge, uh, and I don't think we'll ever be 100% certain of whether mm. Iraq uh, is behind uh, this group and to the, ex- the extent to which uh, that may be the case. Uh, because we should remember that, that it's, it's, it, it, we may guess that it's the case and we may sort of infer from various, uh, various actions that it must, Iran must be behind it and it must have been involved with it, just as we know that Iran is behind or supports the Houthis. Mm-hmm. And we think that Iran was also involved with the, with the, has been involved with the planning of the attacks on, uh, the, on shipping in the Red Sea. But then if you don't have a paper trail, it's very difficult as a liberal democracy to, democracy to say, we uh, proclaim that Iran was behind this because we do like this sort of uh, a certain level of proof the, you know, that we use in our own courts. And so it is a very difficult situation now because everybody may think they know that Iran was behind it, but without proof, it's very difficult to then retaliate against Iran. And we should remember that Iran has said they are not behind this. And as they have said, they were not have not been involved with the Red Sea attacks. And, and then it doesn't matter if we think they were behind it, uh, if, if we want to be seen as liberal democracies that follow the rule of law. Um, Latika, as uh, Elizabeth correctly points out, Iran, as is traditional, denies everything. But is it actually arguable that if you are the United States right now, very possibly the absolute last thing you want is a paper trail linking Tehran to this attack because then you are obliged to respond against Iran. Yes, and we have already seen those sorts of calls within the Republicans today urging Biden to act and act fast. Now, interestingly, Donald Trump has said we're on the brink of World War III without actually specifying what sort of military response the Biden administration should undertake. It's a very, very precarious and difficult balance for the Biden administration here. Who could envy what response to weigh up here? They have said through John Kirby, the National Security uh, Strategic Communications Advisor, uh, that they don't yet have full attribution of this uh, attack, uh, but that they are also not looking for war, but they are weighing up options about how to respond. I mean, the tightrope there is gossamer thin, Mm -hmm. I would imagine, about how they can effectively respond. And it's interesting because I think going into this election year, we would have thought that a different war would have been dominating the election debate. Actually, I think we're going to find it's the Middle East, not Ukraine.
And Andrew, you, you made a, uh, an excellent point just now, which is that it's uh, it's not in the United States' interest to establish beyond reasonable doubt that Iran was behind this, um, because then the moment you have that certainty, then you can't say, well, we're not going to retaliate because it would just be too risky. And that's also and that's a situation that we've seen time and again in, in the past 12 months. We've seen it in the Red Sea, but we've also seen it in the Baltic Sea. Uh, I think your, your mm-hmm. listeners will remember the Sabbath of undersea infrastructure there uh, by this this mysterious Chinese box ship called New New Polar. But I mean, what what a name! Uh, connected, well connected to uh, the Chinese government, the Russian government, and so you can infer from that that it was doing this sabotage uh, on behalf of the Russian government and the Chinese government. But the 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 governments in the region, namely Sweden, Finland, Estonia, they were the affected governments. Um, haven't said anything yet, and I think it will take some time before they uh, declare that they have found the sponsoring state, because then they might have to retaliate against Russia or China. Well, that is not a desirable position to be in. Just as a final thought on this one, uh, Latika, and I guess as an extension of that thought of Elizabeth's, can we at least console ourselves with the thought slash hope that at the bottom of this, what the United States and Iran do actually have in common is that neither of them want to war with the other one? Well, I think that's the same for the United States and China, but that doesn't mean that rising tensions and precarious situations like this don't lend themselves to accidental escalations. And you do have to keep in mind that domestic politics in the United States, you can't have three of your army men die in an attack and the US government not respond in some sort of military way. And if the Biden administration doesn't find a targeted way to satisfy that that uh, need in, in either taking out some infrastructure, say in Syria or something like this, then you are going to have a far worse cheer squad for worse and, and more dangerous action from the Republican side. Well, sticking with the Middle East, it is difficult to overstress the importance of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency to Gaza. UNRWA is Gaza's single biggest employer after what passes for the local government and furnishes the bulk of Gaza's education and healthcare, among other vital services, including food aid, which has become especially important since Israel's assault on Gaza began in October, all of which will become more difficult following the suspension of funding to UNRWA by several major donors concerned that at least 12 UN employees were directly involved in Hamas's attack on Israel last October 7th. Now, Elizabeth, this is a somewhat complex picture. Of the 12 named employees, uh, we are told that nine have been sacked, one is dead, and two are being investigated. Uh, the UN is saying, look, out of 12,000 employees, 12 is not, you know, that many. But um, an in- Israeli intelligence report, it is important to stress, an Israeli intelligent report, intelligence report cited by the Wall Street Journal and others suggests that 1,200 uh, UN employees in Gaza were linked in some way to Hamas or Islamic Jihad. If that is true, if there is a number greater than 12, but perhaps less than 12,000, does that justify the suspension of funding? Well, the, the suspension of funding means that ordinary Palestinians in Gaza are not getting uh, the the financial and and other other support that mm-hmm. on which they depend, including food, school, uh, schooling, and so forth. And I think it, it is um, um, maybe a, a Western mindset to say, well, if people within an organisation have been have been misbehaving, then we'll cut funding. It's uh, in countries that are not as as uh, 
well managed as our liberal democracies, you will find bad apples within many organizations. And and that doesn't take away from the fact that the majority of people within an organization such as UNRWA is probably doing very good work and very honest work. And, and what matters is that people desperately depend on the work of this organization, which is why a country like Norway has said we are not going to cut funding. We will uh, support UNRWA investigating these uh, cases and the suspected cases, but we are not going to cut funding because we want to continue to provide humanitarian support to, to the people who depend on it. Uh, Latika, this is another delicate balance, isn't it, for UNRWA's donors? What What is actually important here? Is it punishing the organisation for the fact that it may have employed somewhere between and a small well, somewhere between a small and a large number of wrongans, or is the priority actually helping the people that UNRWA helps and those people really need help right now? I don't think Western governments had much of a choice here. I think the severity of those allegations are so high and this debate is already so domesticated in terms of the protests that we're seeing on either side um, that there is really no solution but to suspend the aid until an inquiry is carried out. Having said that, there are other organisations that governments have redistributed or said that they can potentially look at redistributing this aid to. But unfortunately, it is a truism of this war that, as well as truth, the Palestinian people are victims and are suffering. Mm -hmm. And this is an extension of that. It's also a truth that this is an information war. One of the fronts of this war has been information. And I think this is one of the first significant uh, wins or blows that the Israelis have dealt, the, the Palestinians, or at least Hamas, in quite some time. I think the Palestinian cause has been uh, just slowly uh, but surely and steadily claiming the international narrative. And this, I think, is a serious setback. I mean, Elizabeth, is it arguable that even prior uh, to these allegations that UNRWA has been somewhat underscrutinised and it has been allowed to get away with stuff? It has been criticised repeatedly and reasonably justifiably with regard to the, the flagrantly uh, anti-Semitic and, and insightful, by which I mean I-N-C-I-T-E-ful uh, stuff in a lot of its educational material. I suppose you could make that case, but I think um, it, it it sort of goes back to why why uh, UNRWA is there in the first place. Mm. Why why is this such an organisation even needed? Why is it that the international community has to provide uh, this sort of infrastructure for a part of the world uh, where it none uh, nothing like it exists anywhere else? Why is it that the international community has to provide this? And once once it is provided by the international community, then the international community expects to have some sort of say over it. Whereas uh, in other countries, this would not even be the case because it would it would be uh, that country's own infrastructure and, and own uh, decision making. So uh, it it. Where being a UN worker is uh, is always difficult because you have the world's geopolitical uh, assessment uh, awaiting you at, at at every turn, and of course there are people who who uh, shouldn't be employed by UNRWA or indeed by other UN agencies. But this is the the, the best system we've got. Nobody has yet presented a better alternative than the UN based uh, international uh, system of of uh, agencies, and uh, and even now nobody has thought of anything better than this. Uh, it's notable, though, 
Latika, just finally on this, that among the top 15 donors uh, to UNRWA, at least until several of them have suspended the donations, there is one Arab country among the top 15. It is Saudi Arabia, which donates $27 million a year, which is an amount of money the Saudis wouldn't miss. Um, it's less than Norway, Sweden or Japan uh, contribute to Gaza, and it's not even close to what the EU, Germany and the United States contribute to Gaza. Yeah, that is noticeable. And actually, until you pointed that out, I, I hadn't really appreciated that fact. I mean, UNWAS two largest donors are the United States, followed by Germany, mm-hmm. uh, and then followed by the European Union. So it is the West that is largely supporting uh, UNRWA. And I think that, unfortunately, um, they the domestic concerns do have to be taken into consideration. It is extremely difficult to sell the case for aid funding as it is to publics in these countries. And if there is any suggestion that it has gone towards uh, the facilitation of carrying out a deadly massacre and a terror attack that is equivalent to the United States 9-11, I'm just not sure that gets past the public. Latika Burke and Elizabeth Braw, thank you for the moment. We'll have more from you shortly. But returning now to the subject of Iran, one might imagine that the regime had sufficient difficulties of its own at home without causing further trouble abroad. It is a year and a half since officers of Tehran's guidance patrol, actual grown men paid by the state to pester women about what they are wearing, beat to death Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who they judged to have adjusted her compulsory headwear with insufficiency sufficient piety. Since then, protests and the grim legal consequences of those protests have been a recurrent feature of Iranian life. Well, earlier I spoke to Arash Azizi, senior lecturer in history at Clemson University, now author of What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. I began by asking Arash where the momentum generated by those protests is at now. We have to be honest, the movement as a whole uh, experienced defeat. I think the movement face the reality that if it does not come together in a political alternative, if it's not able to organize a political alternative uh, with with a political leadership, it cannot dislodge the Islamic Republic. Uh, and it, it has failed in its main goal. However, civil disobedience continues in Iranian society. Millions of Iranian women continue to not wear the hijab that is, that is imposed on them, something that is a, sort of de- an act of daily civil disobedience. And the regime has not been able to solve any of the problems that gave rise to the movement uh, in the first place. So the movement was very important. And, it, you know, it is, as I said, it did go down on to defeat. And I think we need to be honest about it. You know, it's easy to talk about moral victories, but in politics, the victories that matter are those that actually change things. And we were not able to do that. But at the same time, I think new generations of Iranians are not thinking much more seriously about what it will take to finally get rid of the regime that uh, rules over their lives. Because it is a a recurrent and rather depressing theme of your book that, on the one hand, Iran does have much more so than outsiders may imagine a very healthy and vibrant tradition of dissent and, given the circumstances, extremely courageous uh, tradition of dissent. Why doesn't it ever win? Why does it always seem to get to a point of looking like it's about to reach critical mass and then, well, at least you could argue since 1979, has not managed to take that final step. You know, I wrote the book because I want others to see the very richness of Iranian civil society, of the very courageous struggles of people that I'm really proud to call my compatriots who've come out time and time again, women and men who've risked all they have to fight against this regime and to fight for a better world. 
Now, why haven't they won? I think the basic answer is that even though they won a lot of achievements here and there, the real story is that the regime has proven more organized and more capable than the opposition. And unfortunately, the lesson of Iran and lesson of other places as well, but I mean, I think we really sort of see it in Iran, is that a people cannot win unless they're able to come up with a political leadership and political organization. And this might sound something like simple, but in fact, unfortunately, there are tons of people in Iran and around the world in the last 20 years who miseducated us, who told us you don't need this, who told us revolutions are done on Twitter, that you don't need leaders, that you need you have horizontal movements. Iran, Egypt, other countries in the world have shown this to be absolutely disastrous. You absolutely need political leadership and organization if you're going to change something. And I hope that the Iranians of this generation next will finally come to that realization. But does the regime itself still have a significant constituency in Iran? I think it's a common failing, certainly, of Western coverage of revolutions across the Middle East to frame this as exclusively a contest between a brutal, oppressive regime and opponents to it who are usually relatively well-educated, approachable, media-savvy, probably English-speaking types who the Western media feel at home with. And it's often forgotten that in most places, probably quite a large number of people are still reasonably happy with the government they have. Is that the case in Iran, do you think? Yeah, I don't think that's the case in Iran. I think you're right about some countries at certain periods. But I think in Iran, the real base of the regime is really a small. I would estimate 15% of the population. And it's not just an estimate. If you look at, for example, presidential elections, those who really vote for hardline supporters of the regime are not more than 15, 20% of the population at most. And I think there is a widespread opposition amongst Iranians to the regime, you know, not on liberal grounds only, because, you know, it's one thing that Iran is the dictatorship, but it's also very inefficient. It's really sort of destroyed the country and run it to the ground. If you compare the regime to say, you know, the communist regime in Vietnam, that's also undemocratic, but at least it has good economic growth for Vietnam. I think people in Vietnam will feel like that their life is improving. Many other countries that you can bring examples. In Iran, it's an extreme case of inefficacy, destroying the economy. Iran, just as a country, doesn't look like the place that it was even 20 years ago, frankly. And it's gone worse in every imaginable way. And also, it's a very sort of deep crisis of representation because the regime, its leaders, they just don't look like any section of Iranian society, by which I mean that they are a sort of a small clique, which has, you know, as I said, little resemblance of any sections of Iranian society. Like, we're not just talking about liberals or English speaking in any parts, right? Like my own family, like I think the average Iranian family includes people of who are very devout, some of whom are super religious. Uh, you know, my grandmother prays uh, 12 hours a day, but even she and, and others are not happy with the way things are in Iran, just because they look around and they see people don't have uh, money to eat. There's huge unemployment and the country's leaders are super corrupt and they don't seem to care for the well-being of their citizens. So it's really widespread disillusionment. But I think the, a key problem is that the opponents, as I said, have not been able to put their differences aside and come together. I mean, and it's very hard to organize inside Iran, of course, as the book shows. There's a book about largely tons of people in prisons. But that's no excuse. If you're going to win, you're going to have to be able to overcome those obstacles. And as I said, it's about time that we learned that uh, we need real political victories for which we would need real political uh, leadership and organization. At the risk of giving away the ending of your book, you do look at the figure at the top of the Islamic Republic, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who can't live forever. He's 84 years old. Does it strike you that Khamenei's passing might be the next inflection point? 
Yes, I think it does. I think uh, realistically speaking, the next moment where we will have some sort of a real crisis in Iran is probably will be the passing of Supreme Leader Khamenei. And is, this is not just because he's the leader, because he also has a very unique role. He's really a linchpin that is holding together a system that otherwise won't hold. Now, I have to tell you, when Khamenei dies, I think I don't usually wish death on anybody, but I think I speak for millions of Iranians or will be very happy when that day comes and we'll celebrate. And some of us always fantasize about, you know, what's situation will be in when we get the news. But of course, it's not also clear that the immediate aftermath would be good news because there might be a lot of chaos. But ultimately, Khamenei needs to go for this uh, unstable regime to fundamentally change. And I think there are chances. And, and you know, trying to be optimistic, I think there are even uh, sections of the regime establishment that are not happy with the way things are. Just because, as I said, it's the Islamic Republic of 2023 is non-defensible from any perspective. You know, the Soviet Union of 1989 was a smashing success compared to this <laughs> regime. It's not, uh, you know, it, it hasn't provided economy for the people. It hasn't made Iran more Islamic. It hasn't made Iran more devout. You know, Iran today is much less of a spiritual religious place than it's like ever been in its history because people see that the religion is used as a name for thieves, basically, to get away with whatever they want to do. Whereas real sort of devout people in society have nowhere to go and they see that the religion is abused. This regime is a failure from most angles. And that's why one would think that even, you know, I have no illusion that uh, there would be sort of a democratic transformation immediately after Khamenei dies, but there probably will be dismantling of some of the most outrageous policies. One could hope for that. That was the historian and author Arish Azizi speaking to me earlier. His new book, What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom, is out now. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Elizabeth Braw and Latika Burke. And Finland went to the polls yesterday to choose a new president, but has not yet quite made up its mind. A second round of voting a couple of weeks from now will be necessary to separate former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Alexander Stubb and former Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto. The role of president in Finland is a curious one. Though largely ceremonial in terms of domestic politics, Finland's president plays a significant role in foreign and security policy. Um, Latika, on foreign and security policy, um, we will come to the differences, and they are considerable in style between the two men shortly, but on the important stuff, i.e. policy, do you reckon you'd live long on the difference between them? No, I think Finland's come to the same position that a lot of countries who've formed very hawkish security policies now in light of what's happening in Russia and what's happening in the Indo-Pacific, and that is that uh, security policy is pretty much bipartisan, right? We've seen Finland uh, join NATO, um, still waiting for Sweden. <laughs> we <laughs> hope that will be soon, one day. Um, but I think also what's really interesting in, in Finland is, quite apart from this, is this, again, a new societal resilience efforts to kind of prepare for not necessarily war, but if worse things should come for the continent. Um, Elizabeth, I I have had the advantage while hosting the Foreign Desk of interviewing uh, both of Finland's presidential candidates. Uh, They are two very, very different characters, though, aren't they? They are. One is very outgoing and uh, self-promoting and uh, uh, I think almost uh, obsessively uh, uh, 
uh, active. He he does lots of things. is extremely active on social media. And then on top of all of that, he does Ironman runs, which is uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> I think uh, uh, something that makes him unique among presidential candidates, and at least in the countries I know. And then you got uh, Havisto, who's very Finnish, and mm. uh, I think uh, sort of <laughs> more in line of what we would expect from a presidential candidate. And and he in in a sense he's very similar to the current uh, occupant, uh, Sauli Niinistö, who is uh, also very deliberate and and, uh, uh, very uh, Finnish in his demeanour. But uh, then again, the, when when it comes to foreign and security policy, they don't really represent uh, very different worldviews. Also, because Finland has a long tradition of of, uh, of consensus in in security policy and foreign policy, and uh, uh, it's reflected every year in the survey that the the, the government puts out. Uh, Finnish people basically think the same about how their country should their country's defense should be set up, how the country's foreign policy should be set up. Um, as regular listeners will be aware, we spoke last week uh, on the Daily about this election to Marcus Hippi, formerly of Monocle, now working for Finland's embassy uh, here in London. And, and he was talking about how Finland's presidential elections were, well, very much as they conform pretty much to Finnish stereotype. It's all terribly sober and staid and gentlemanly and proper and serious and unfussy. Um, you mentioned earlier your fondness for Australian and British politics, which rarely attract any of those <laughs> adjectives. Um, do you find yourself wishing, why can't we have this? Well, I think the only way to make the Finnish result more stereotypical would be if it was thrashed out in the sauna. Because ever since <laughs> that's, that's the third round. Ever since Marcus has relocated to the embassy um, away from Midori House, I've had a wonderful invite to experience sauna diplomacy in the Finnish embassy, and uh, I think it's down on the basement level. They have refurbished their wonderful sauna, and it was a great way to discuss the world's problems. I must admit. So, I'm up for any way of electing or resolving issues that involve sitting in a hot room together in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) The the, uh, one important thing to remember, one important difference to remember is that uh, Stubb is is obviously a Swedish speaker and that Mm -hmm. is very rare uh, uh, among Finnish presidents. He he, he speaks several other languages as he's always keen to let you know as well. (laughs) (laughs) He does, but but he is a member of the the Swedish-speaking minority Mm -hmm. and uh, it is rare for Finland to have a Swedish-speaking president and I think... most people will know Finland's most famous uh, Swedish-speaking president. That was um, Marshall Mannerheim, the, the war, the, the the hero of the Winter War, who led the Finns in this extraordinarily heroic defense of their country against the Soviets. Uh, but uh, other than that, it just hasn't. That, just haven't been many many candidates for for president. So here we have uh, Stubb, and and it is important because. As is the case in many countries, uh, the majority uh, language, uh, the speakers of the majority language become lazy and don't learn the minority language and instead often resort to English. And that is that is a bad habit. And I know <laughs> it annoys uh, Swedish-speaking Finns that so many of their Finnish-speaking compatriots don't bother learning Swedish to the point where, that they can converse and often use English instead, uh, in, uh, as they do with, with me, whereas, in fact, they should. 
should be able to speak Swedish because they have uh, a Swedish-speaking minority and Swedish is an official language. Well, finally on today's show, a big hello to any passengers on Icon of the Seas who have already wearied of the 40 bars and restaurants, the seven swimming pools, the six water slides, ice ballet, casino, karaoke and onboard production of The Wizard of Oz and are now staring blankly into the Caribbean Sea while listening to the Monocle Daily. Icon of the Seas, the largest cruise ship in the world, 365 metres long and able to accommodate 7,000 600 passengers has embarked upon its maiden voyage from Miami. Latika, you're now freelance. You could be anywhere. You could be a digital nomad. Are you currently desperately sorry that you are not filing your substack from a cabin aboard Icon of the Seas? Look, (laughs) I've got to be honest. I was not a cruise fan, but I did actually go on a cruise because how can you say whether you like one of these things or not until you try? Mm. And I did actually enjoy it very much. This one, I must say... I would enjoy if I could select every other passenger with me. It's <laughs> so, not so much the activities on board that would bother me. It might be how other passengers enjoying those so, activities. So if, if you could me. embark with 7,599 of your closest friends. Correct, or all of my subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the cruise you actually enjoyed? Because I, I have a similar semi-confession to make. Oh, Andrew, it's all coming out now. Yeah. Well, I went on the Cunard Queen Mary 2. Uh, from Southampton to New York. And I have to say, one of the most beautiful memories I have is coming around to see the Statue of Liberty glowing green at 5am in the morning and it was blistering cold outside, but you did have that romantic sense of what it must have been like for uh, the migrants making the journey across the Atlantic. On much less comfortable ships. No, I I, I actually did a seven-night cruise in the Caribbean out of Miami, I admit, but there is... I wasn't expecting that one. Well, no, there's an American promotions company who basically put extremely niche music festivals on ships. Um, And I went on their kind of folk music (laughs) alternative country one, which was actually pretty cool because it was at sea for a week. Every night you could go and see Steve Earle, John Prine, Richard Thompson, uh, Brandy Carlisle. It was not actually unenjoyable in that respect. And because, I mean, it wasn't several thousand of my closest friends, but it was several thousand (laughs) people, Latika, who broadly share my somewhat recherche tastes in music. Um, Would you like to confess to ever having been on and perhaps even slightly enjoying a cruise, Elizabeth? Uh, No, and I will never go on one because they are the biggest environmental sinners. They are, (laughs) these cruise ships. They destroy the waters in the, the, the ports and cities they call on. And they also don't contribute anything to the local economy. They leave uh, they leave lots of waste behind the ports, uh, lots of, of uh, um, uh, discharge, and uh, they also use the local uh, authorities' services whenever they get into trouble. Norway has, for example, uh, expressed uh, concern about how cruise ships go into the fjords, even at bad weather, because obviously they, they have sold this to their passengers, so they have to show it to their passengers. Then they get into trouble. Norwegian authorities have to come and rescue them at the expense of Norwegian taxpayers. This is really a scourge that is not appropriate for the 21st century. But there's six water slides, Elizabeth, and a production of The Wizard of Oz. Is, is, I mean, I, Can't convince me, Andrew. <laughs> I, I, could, I mean, I, I could live without The Wizard of Oz, Latika. I don't mind a water slide. I could do the karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we have, you know, there, there's, there's two people here that importuning cruise operators seeking to scare up some good press. 
uh, could be writing to Elizabeth. We'll send you a postcard. Uh, but that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Elizabeth Braw and Latika Burke. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.